Growing Up, our brand new resource for churches and parents is out now. Woohoo! With Sunday school sessions, training videos, podcast episodes for parents and one for the whole family. All there to help our children navigate the confusion, filter the messages they're surrounded by and hear God's good story. All our Growing Up resources point to the Heavenly Father who loves our children even more than we do and has the answer to their biggest questions about who they are and how to live. Together, as families and churches, we can support each other to start good conversations about bodies, gender and marriage so our children can grow up hearing God's good story. Head over to the website faithinkids.org and find out all the details about growing up. statistics do indeed seem to show that uh, mental health struggles are on the rise. And, and I don't think we should be particularly surprised about that, given the stresses and strains of the pandemic. That's actually really still quite recent. Uh, it might feel like things are getting back to normal and have been normal for a little while now. But if you look at a life of a child, the pandemic, certainly for younger children, has been a massive proportion of their lives. And that's going to have an ongoing impact on them doesn't necessarily need to be overwhelming and devastating, but it's part of their life. It's there and we can't change that. There has been a sense that life has felt very insecure. There's been a lot of change. Uh, They've had to learn how to do lots of things very differently, very quickly. And they've been having to do that, like learning at home and staying at home and and not going out and taking the normal exercise. Whilst let's face it, most of us as grown-ups have been pretty stressed too. Uh, and haven't necessarily had all of the resources that we might normally have to be talking people through things carefully. So it's been quite a, a, a huge problem over the last few years and the rise in anxiety is enormous. Welcome to the Faith in Parents podcast. We're here to encourage you, to walk alongside you, to help parents know that you are the people that God has given the task of raising your children to, and you can do it because he is with you. Today, we've got some wonderful guests. Ed, you're here. Say hello. (laughs) Hello, Amy. It's lovely to be back. This is the Who Am I series. We're looking at identity We've released some resources. You can find them on our website. We've released some podcasts for families. It's great to be here. Helen, we've got you with us today. What a treat. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm Helen. I'm based in southwest London, where I live with my very overweight cat. (laughs) And I spend most of my time uh, working for an organisation called Biblical Counselling UK. Brilliant. Ed, we are taking on quite a big topic this afternoon but we're all going to be okay aren't we we're going to be we're going to be more than okay i've been very encouraged to hear one of our colleagues is in a bible study where they were discussing uh, the podcast we did with andrew bunt and julie maxwell on gender identity and they agreed that a difficult painful confusing topic mm-hmm. was made to sound manageable and straightforward particularly because christ is at the heart of it 
So that's what we're doing today. We're taking a difficult and intimidating topic that is body image and self-harm, how we cope with children and young people in distress, mm -hmm. and how Christ is there to cope with us. And we're going to make it seem manageable and normal, and as though it's going to be fine. Ed, I've got a question for you. Yes. How do you cope with distress? Uh, I Maybe I should answer for uh, you. Okay, you, are, you, you start my answer <laughs> and I'll finish it. I think you cope with stress with prawn cocktail Pringles <laughs> and peanut M&Ms. It's exactly true. And the only thing I'd add to that list is strong coffee. That is exactly how I cope with, with problems. And it's not a joke. Those three things. I know, I know it's a stressful meeting when Ed arrives with yellow bag of peanut M&Ms and prawn cocktail Pringles. He's expecting okay. it to go badly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Helen, can can you tell us a bit about your personal experience of this topic, either now or earlier on in your life or both? I think for uh, many, many years, I've struggled with body image. It became clear very early on that I was not going to be one of those children that was sporty. Uh, and I was not going to be one of those children that were in the kind of glamorous, well-dressed, popular set either. Uh, that what comes with having some physical uh, struggles as a child uh, and teeth that just went completely mad. I mean, who knew what they were actually doing when they first came through? There was no telling what order they were going to come out in. Uh, and so I think I grew up thinking that I would just looked a bit weird and I felt a bit weird uh, and I didn't like my body at all. I think when I was little, that didn't particularly have a well-articulated sense. But as I got into my teenage years, that morphed into a struggle with uh, an eating disorder. It morphed into a 17-year battle with self-harm. And it was, wasn't until I was in my early 30s that uh, a number of those things came together uh, and I were able to come through to a, a much, much better place. And Helen, just help us to understand as you now look at that full spectrum from peanut M&Ms to 17 years of self-harm, could you just help us to understand a little of coping with distress and difficult situations? What, what are the options you see in people and, and what are the Christian options? I think, first of all, it's worth saying that we all struggle with stress. It's not like there's a category of people that struggle and a category of people who don't. Of course, some people are a bit more resilient. Some people are able to have a higher threshold. But we all have our wobbly days and most of us have our wobbly months and years where we just find life pretty overwhelming. And I think as Christians, we're aware that there are lots of things that we can do to cope with those stressful situations. The, the, the practical things that you can Google about breathing and eating healthily and taking exercise and prioritising and resting. But there's also lots of things in, in the Bible about trusting a God who is big, about following him faithfully, about turning to him in prayer, about knowing he's our rock and our refuge, uh, about being someone that takes seriously that biblical call to community. So we do the tough things together rather than in isolation. Mm -hmm. But most of us, well, all of us, we have hearts that go astray. And that means whilst we know that God makes a difference and community makes a difference, and actually things like God-given uh, wisdom and medication makes a difference, or like you've just been saying, a number of us just turn in directions that give us a quick fix, mm. just kind of gives a moment of relief. For me, that's ginger nuts. <laughs> uh, and for everybody listening, that would be something different. Helen, so for a lot of us, 
a lot of the people listening, we are terrified parents who love our children desperately and want to protect them from everything difficult and everything hard. And so there's that part of me when you tell your story about being, you know, the little girl who didn't like her teeth and didn't like her body, that as as the mum who wants to superman in and fix everything, I want to know what should your parents have said to stop this from happening and how should your dentist have done a better job and, you know, how can we just stop all these terrible things happening to you so that you can be safe and protected and possibly learn nothing about trusting the Lord along the way, but it's okay. I'd much rather you were happy and protected. <laughs> and that's, just, it's a beautiful instinct, isn't it? Love causes us to want to protect. Love causes us to, to want to make things better. And that's an absolutely right instinct for a parent to have. Mm-hmm. But we need to hold two things in tension, don't we? One is, as a parent, there is that role of providing and protecting. Mm-hmm. But also, as a parent, there is that role of equipping people to live in what is a fallen and broken world. Mm-hmm. And, and much as we might want to fast pace to the new heavens and the new earth, where it's all going to be wonderful and there's not going to be any stress or anything that's going to be anxiety-inducing, we're not there yet. Mm. We're in the bookends of his- not in the bookends of history where it's perfect. We're in the middle of history where it's imperfect. Mm. And part of that parenting role isn't about protecting. Part of that parenting role is about equipping Mm. to deal with the inevitability of brokenness and fallenness and equipping to to persevere on through Mm -hmm. the hard stuff that is going to come no matter how hard we try. Yeah. Yes. And I think, Ed, you've said this before about that actually parenting, we parent for the day that we're not there. So if I teach my child that actually what they need is for me to come and fix everything and make it better they're never going to be okay without me, <laughs> which maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be their saviour. Just, just, just maybe. That must be right. And goodness, I, 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 it's really tempting now to try to answer the, these questions. You know, what Amy says, how do we both protect? Helen, thank you for being clear that there is a moment to pause before rushing in, scooping up the problem, having a big hug and imagining that that has fixed it. Mm. There are com- particularly as our children get older, there are conversations that can get a bit longer. Mm. We can go deeper and we can understand and we can ask great questions. Helen, there's a thing at the moment, which is we hear a lot about mental health in children and young people, problems being on the rise. First of all, is, is that the impression you get? And, and c- can you help us to understand what some of the causes might be, knowing that this is very complex? It is very complex indeed, but the statistics do indeed seem to show that uh, mental health struggles are on the rise. And, and I don't think we should be particularly surprised about that, given the stresses and strains of the pandemic. That's actually really still quite recent. Uh, it might feel like things are getting back to normal and have been normal for a little while now. But if you look at a life of a child, the pandemic, certainly for younger children, has been a massive proportion of their lives. And that's going to have an ongoing impact on them doesn't necessarily need to be overwhelming and devastating, but it's part of their life. It's there and we can't change that. There has been a sense that life has felt very insecure. There's been a lot of change. Uh, They've had to learn how to do lots of things very differently, very quickly. And they've been having to do that, like learning at home and staying at home and and not going out and taking the normal exercise. Whilst let's face it, most of us as grown-ups have been pretty stressed too uh, and haven't necessarily had all of the resources that we might normally have to be talking people through things carefully. So it's been quite a a huge problem over the last few years and the rise in anxiety is enormous. 
I'm still getting over homeschooling. My goodness, I've that was a trauma marker for me. Never mind my children. Mm. So yes, I totally agree. And then if you add into all of that the fact that we're now living in a in a world where there is just an astonishing amount of choice for people that are very very young. Now, I'm not saying don't give children choice. Having choice is really important, but there's kind of a sweet spot. If you imagine a kind of a little curve, and if you have no choice, that's really stressful and anxiety inducing. Uh, And then you give people more choice and their anxiety can go down. And you get to this sweet point, which is like there's a bit of choice, but not too much choice. But actually, if you keep giving people more and more and more and more choice, the anxiety levels go up again. Mm. Uh, And we're living in a world where we give well, the world gives our children a lot of choice very early on. And that in itself is very anxiety inducing. And I think as a mom, thinking about like my life with my children is that I know that there are things that we're not ready for and that perhaps we feel under pressure to consider before we wanted to because other people are. And then you start doing that thing of, is this making it worse or am I standing the ground on what matters for them? So we we stood our ground on on phones and and there's all kinds of different things that we stand stand our ground on and it's up to us as individual parents who know our kids best to work out what that is but i know for my children thinking the pressure of other people's opinion when you haven't worked out your own is so huge that i need i really need to stick my ground on this for them which makes me quite unpopular but my reason for doing that is i'm trying to protect your ability to think well of of yourself because I know how particularly hard comments from social media from others uh, whatsapp groups would be devastating to you and as parents it's just helpful to remember we're the ones in authority God has placed us in authority so we get to choose the choices we offer our children and when we we tell them there is no choice here that is a loving thing to do Helen you've sketched that out mm. What what are some of the common factors, Helen, you see in those who experience this distress? I think it can range um, depending on age and experience. So anxiety is very common and that might be shown anything from bedwetting beyond the years where bedwetting would be normally seen through to pulling out of hair, through to not wanting to eat, through to being very scared and, and wanting to withdraw from social situations through to having a very low sense of self-image, through to um, self-destructive behaviours, whether that's classic self-harm or eating disorders or uh, a kind of a distorted body image of some description. I mean, the spectrum is so wide. uh, And that just shows, you know, what a broken world we are in at the moment and how much we need the hope and help of the Lord and others around us. And I wonder if there's a part of as as children are are growing and trying to work out how to deal with distress, they don't have the language to talk about how they're feeling. They're not used to having those deep conversations. They feel quite intense to have. We talked on the last podcast about a bit of a difference between boys and girls as another big sweeping statement that girls are more likely to absorb stress and perhaps turn that in on themselves and boys are more likely to take it out on their environment and on others. And (laughs) as a mom of a boy and a girl who struggle with various levels of anxiety in in their own lives, I have a daughter who pulls out her her eyelashes um, and a son who tends to wreck stuff. And I think 
for for my daughter particularly learning that that was a thing that lots of girls her age do to cope with stress was so liberating for her and was able to open up a conversation about how how could we deal with this differently and for me it was devastating because wow you're now in this category of people who aren't okay and i don't want us to be here so i think as parents we then have to try and remember that it isn't <laughs> it isn't only about us in the situation that trying to understand perhaps something of where our children are coming from and the skills that they lack in being able to talk about their struggles this is communication so they are telling me that they're not okay and how am i responding to that rather than just shouting please stop it That's so important, isn't it? Because behaviour is a language, if you like. Uh, And the younger someone is, the more they're going to communicate with you through behaviour rather than through words. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... And it's not easy. I mean, learning another language. I mean, I'm useless. I was useless at French at school. You know, learning another language can be really hard. But what is that temper tantrum actually saying? What is that refusal to eat actually communicating? And the more we can tease into that little bit by little bit, the more that we can actually look at the roots of what's going on in our children's lives rather than just dealing with the fruits, the observable things uh, that we can see day by day. But we just want to shout stop it at the same time. And we have to we have to acknowledge that and then realise that maybe. <laughs> and, and there will be a few moments here and there when, you know, world is getting unsafe, where actually saying stop it is an entirely appropriate thing to do. But we don't want to stop at stop it. Yes. Uh, there's something deeper to go for as well. Okay, Helen. So that must be what you've got to talk about next, which is... Talk, talk us through the everyday God's wisdom, the way the world works. This is how we can, this is how we start. And then will you take us through, I guess, to what what is, what is the Christian way to tackle some of the more, the more difficult, pressing difficulties we see in our children? Wow, that's an enormous question. We could be here. Okay, start at the beginning. <laughs> start at the beginning, Helen. I can't remember the question. What was the first bit? Helen, at the beginning... <laughs> Temper tantrums, shouting, crying and throwing stuff. How can we respond to that? Of course, initially, you want to make sure your child is safe. But once you've got beyond that basic, is the child safe and the other children around them safe question, then it's looking at, well, what triggered that temper tantrum? Sometimes it is they wanted something that they couldn't have. But again, you might want to dig deeper is why is not having that thing so important to them? And so just keep... You know, like your children are really good at going, but why? But, but, but why? In a sense, we almost want to be doing that, turning that around and doing that inside our heads. Why was that thrown? Why were they shouting? Well, they didn't get that. Well, why did they want that? Well, they wanted that because they thought it'd bring them comfort. But why did they think that thing would bring them comfort? And so we want to be tracking that back, not in an obsessive way. I mean, you can overanalyze life. Uh, and there is a sense in which you want to take a few case studies rather than me analyzing absolutely every single behavior that your child comes out with. It would become completely unwieldy and impractical uh, to do that. <laughs> but if you track some of the common things... And then go back, okay, well, they shouted because they were angry. They were angry because they didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get what they wanted because they thought that thing would bring them security. They wanted security because they were scared about this. And they were scared about this because someone at, at school or at nursery has done something that they find scary. And you track back and you think, oh, well, that really angry, that that outburst, that thing that looks naughty, 
actually, I've got a child there that's scared. Mm -hmm. Uh, And whilst, of course, there is a case for discipline and actually saying we don't do that, Mm -hmm. there's also a very strong case for going, well, how can I help my child to be less scared? How can I help them to build security? How can I help them to know that in this difficult situation, there are other ways of expressing my emotions, which are far more constructive Mm -hmm. uh, and would help build a relationship rather than destroy it. And if we do just a few sort of case studies, a few kind of dips into that, we can get a a much better picture of what our children are going through. You see, Helen, so I'm already thinking what I need to do now is go and do a psychology degree so that when my child does something, I can properly analyse their behaviour and work it out. And I think it's probably a little bit easier than I'm imagining. So you're (laughs) going to tell us a story and I'm going to feel better. Right. Good. I'll go and tell you a story. <laughs> tell me a story. I don't know. Not just any story. A story about a child that you that unpacks what you just said. You don't have to read me a calm down story. It's okay. So imagine a child uh, that is sitting at the dinner table and refusing to eat their dinner. I there can are... imagine. I can imagine. Sorry. So carry on. <laughs> there are tears running down their eyes. You know that they're hungry. Uh, because just a little while ago they were asking for snacks, so it's not a it's not a lack of appetite issue. It is a I don't want to eat issue. So you'll just then maybe have a, a kind of a well, how are you feeling now? Lots of children won't be able to answer that question. So at that point, you go to, might go to the internet the day before. You've printed off that sort of A4 sheet of paper with lots of faces on them. Some of them smiling, some of them frowning, some of them grimacing, and you just go. Do you want to point to the picture, how you feel right now? And they point to the picture, which is sad. And you think, oh, has something made you sad today? And hopefully they'll tell you a little story of something that happened at school that made them sad. Uh, Alternatively, you can ask them to tell their teddy bear the story of what made them sad, because sometimes children talk to their cuddly toys far more easily than they talk to their parents. And you know what? That's absolutely fine sometimes. It's helping them express that's important at this point uh, in time. So there they are at the dinner table with tears still in their eyes and their peas still uneaten, uh, telling their teddy bear about the fact that someone uh, in their nursery class was mean to another child that day and it made them feel sad and you sit there and go oh that that was you know that was you know not not a good thing for that person to have done I can see why you feel sad about that um are there any other emotions that you're feeling and they'll go back and they point to their pictures and there's one that's scared oh you know do you want to tell your teddy why you're scared about that so well if they were mean to that little girl maybe they're going to be mean to me tomorrow and I'm scared about that and we all know what we like you know, when I'm really scared about something, I don't want a big dinner. Uh, your stomach feels all churned up. It feels like everything's out of control. It feels like you can't control life. So you, you, you control what you can and, you know, controlling what you can and can be controlling what you're eating. And suddenly, rather than a child having a refusal to eat their dinner, you've got a child that you know is sad and scared. And so you talk about uh, God's comfort. You talk about God being safe and strong. You talk through some strategies of how to cope and how to talk to the nursery teacher if anything sad or scary happens in nursery. Uh, And then hopefully they might eat just a little bit their dinner. I'm not naive enough to think they'll eat it all. Um, Some of it may end up on the floor. (laughs) 
but you can just track back. And as again, I say, I'm not suggesting you do that at every meal. You do not yep. want your meals to become into mini therapy sessions, but just occasionally doing a few test cases and little by little, you will pick up some themes. And of course, they won't always tell you. That's what children are like. Sometimes they leave the behaviour there and they don't put words to it. So do not panic if you don't get that conversation. But little by little, you can just build up a picture of what's going on and it helps you see the route. And you absolutely don't need a psychology degree. You just need to be listening. Just need to be a parent yeah, who wants to try and understand their child. Helen, could we now think about self-harm, mm. which we hear a lot about? Could you just tell us a little of what is it and how does it function? What is the person who is self-harming trying to achieve? Maybe let's talk about it too rationally. Fill in the gaps, Helen. Self-harm at its core is the act of inflicting pain or injury upon yourself in order to manage some emotional distress. It's not just a kind of mindless beating yourself up. Uh, It's not trying to end your life. Uh, An attempt on suicide is different to self-harm. They can be linked sometimes, but it is generally quite different. Uh, But it is uh, that sense of by causing yourself pain or injury, you can help yourself cope with the fact that life feels broken and hard. Now, there tend to be four different categories uh, that self-harm can fall into. Of course, human beings don't fit nicely into four different categories. There'll always be overlap and complexity here. But it, it can be useful to think of it like this. Sometimes, and this might be in older children predominantly, although it can be in younger ones too, there can be a sense of I've done something wrong and I need to be punished for it. But nobody else has punished me for it, so I'm going to punish myself. Uh, That's the kind of self-harm that's driven by guilt. Mm. Uh, That might be a a self-hitting kind of feel or or punching a wall. That that sort of activity often fills into that category. The second category, it can be a self-cleansing activity. I feel like there's something dirty inside me. I feel like there's bad inside me and I want to get it out. Uh, and that's often what you might see if someone is cutting themselves. It's almost like symbolically putting a hole in the body so the bad stuff can come out. Now, clearly, most of our children wouldn't articulate it in that way. But that seems to be the function that it it, it serves, that sort of self-cleansing. There, there can be some sensation creation going on. Sometimes when life is very scary, we can feel very numb. And therefore, we want to actually create a sensation because the human body finds pain less uncomfortable than numbness. We don't like feeling nothing at all. And so sometimes if we've kind of got completely numb for some reason, maybe something traumatic, the children will create a sensation by hurting themselves. And fourthly, the category can be that of control. You might see this if someone's being bullied or has been abused in some way. I suppose that the classic example is of sexual abuse where children have had absolutely no control over what goes into their body. Uh, and so they will control what they can. They may not be able to control what an adult is doing to them, but they will control what they eat or they will control what happens to that patch of skin. They will control uh, what they consume. Now, of course, just because someone is self-harming doesn't mean that they have experienced sexual abuse or, or something that traumatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that there is a pain in their life that they are struggling to be able to cope with. Uh, and therefore, they're bringing themselves some short-term relief by either bringing a sense of punishment, a sense of cleansing, a sense of control or a sense of sensation 
into their experience of life. So, Helen, I think the thing that um, surprised me the most uh, about talking to people who've struggled with self-harm and in that moment that that to them it felt like a really sensible thing to do. And, you know, to me, it feels like a really surprising thing to do. And so that almost that that gap between I don't understand you and you don't understand me is widened. I remember talking to an older teenage boy who uh, I'd known since he was tiny, who had started to experiment a little bit with self-harm, so had been sort of hitting the outside of his arms and him explaining that he was upset about how he'd handled a situation, but as calmly and logically as, so I did this to sort it out. And that, that recoil in me of I just wanted to sort of say, what a stupid thing to do. Of course, that wouldn't sort it. How would that sort it out? That makes it worse. That, you know, I am then just increasing that divide of you and me are so completely different because I would never do that in a million years. So that now we're looking at one another from opposite ends of a pole rather than just slightly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have responded that way. But also, please tell me why you thought it would be okay and what I should do next. And that's absolutely right, isn't it? I think when we see self-harm, if we've not experienced it ourselves, if we've not been there ourselves, it can look just very strange, can't it? Because mm-hmm. most of us try not to hurt ourselves. We spend mm-hmm. actually quite a considerable amount of time ensuring we don't get hurt. I'm uh, quite a wimp. I'm quite a wimp. <laughs> I, I don't want to fall over. Absolutely. But I think for those people who have tried self-harm and found it useful, and of course we we need to emphasise that there are lots of children which experiment with self-harm but don't find it useful and therefore don't continue with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can be just one of those things that they try once or twice and then then set aside. It's not once you've tried it, you're then on a downward slope. Mm -hmm. There There is that group of children and indeed adults who discover that short term at least self-harm produces a level of calm that it doesn't feel like anything else does. I remember when I was self-harming I would get completely overwhelmed by a sense of failure or a sense of guilt or a sense that I was just a a useless and pathetic human being who could never get anything right Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wanted to get rid of that feeling Uh, and I tried writing it down and that didn't help. I tried speaking to friends and that didn't help. I tried, you know, uh, playing the piano and, and that didn't help. But actually cutting, I got relief. Now, clearly big picture and with retrospect, I can see that every time I did cut myself, I was just practising an unhelpful coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that almost came into what was I suppose, like a pseudo addiction. Uh, And I felt like I needed that more and more and more. And therefore, it was a downward spiral, not an upward spiral. In retrospect, you can see that so clearly. And from the outside, you can see that so clearly. But when you're in that moment, all that matters is getting a moment of calm. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that self-harm brings that moment of calm. Uh, And that is very alluring when life feels like it's falling apart. And I suppose for children and young people who live in the moment and don't have a big perspective and don't think further down the line, is this a coping strategy that I want to depend on long term? We're almost making this sound like it's a great, a great skill. Let's, let's, this is wonderful. This is going to help you through. So <laughs> clearly that's not what we think. How do we help? Uh, how do we respond? What should we be doing? <laughs> 
I think the first thing to be doing is listening to the why someone is self-harming. Mm-hmm. It's so, so easy to look at the behaviour and want the behaviour to stop. And rightly so, because mm-hmm. that behaviour is is not going to be helping anybody long term or in the short term for that matter. But actually looking at the roots is so important. Now, sometimes we're going to need help with that. And that's where mm-hmm. I think people like the GPs and child and adolescent mental health teams can come into play and as Christians you know there is no shame in actually you know trawling the wisdom of those professionals in fact you know I would wholeheartedly encourage parents who are worried to seek out the wisdom of those professionals mm-hmm. but what we want to be doing as, as, as parents and as friends and as people in the church is is to be listening to the why and to be remembering that actually the Bible has a lot to say about who should be taking the punishment when we get things wrong the bible yes, has a Helen. lot to say it really about, does <laughs> it has a lot to say about how to be cleansed it has a lot to say about who is the rightful king of our life it has a lot to say about what life and life in all its fullness really is and that's something that the secular professionals are never going to be kind of drawing people's attention to and as christian parents that's the kind of area that we can dwell in wow. and helping the god's word and, and god's love mm-hmm. uh, come to bear on the on the root struggles Mm-hmm. that our children are wrestling with. So I think as you know as Christian parents we've got we've got a much greater resource cupboard to draw from than than anybody else because yes we get professional help yes we go to the GP yes we get those people involved and yes somebody in our church will pray for us and make us a lasagna and uh, all those other things will also happen but we have a god to trust who has something to say. So I, th- I think that's something that as parents, we can get nervous about, that we can think that there are sort of, there are mental health problems, there are there are certain things that the Bible, you know, these are big issues and, and like they're somehow outside of the jurisdiction of, of faith. And we just get the mental health services involved here because faith has no- nothing to say. I'm pretty sure you 100% think that that is not the case. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a big fan of engaging the professionals. But God has always got something to say. He is Lord of all of our lives in every aspect. And therefore, his lordship has something to say in every single situation. Now, I have to acknowledge with self-harm, turning to God's word does have a few complexities, because if you just look for incidences of self-harm in the Bible, you're going to go back to Elijah uh, and watching the prophets of Baal slash themselves with knives in in kind of pagan idolatry. Or you're going to go to the demon possessed man living in the caves. um, uh, And uh, neither of those are exactly the stories that we (laughs) want to be going to uh, for this kind of modern expression of of Mm self-harm. which is why it's so important we we are able to tease out whether there's self-punishment or self-cleansing or self-control or or self-soothing going on because then we can apply God's word to the roots rather than the behavior okay uh, we we don't want to go down the demon possessed route or the pagan uh, worship <laughs> route that's not going to be helpful but what we want to be going down is actually do you know that Jesus has done all the bleeding that needs to be done mm-hmm. His death on the cross was sufficient to make you clean, Mm -hmm. completely clean. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that means, you know, there is no need now to hold on to the guilt. We we can give all of that to Jesus. We can talk that one through and maybe do that in some physical way and kind of talking about what we're feeling guilty about and, and maybe writing that down or drawing a picture and actually physically putting that at the foot of a, a cross or something like that, that kind of physicality, which just 
helps children understand it's now gone. And I'm sure you as a parent uh, will have lots of games and things that you can play and and lots of ideas Mm. of how you can talk about what it means to be clean, Mm. what it means to be uh, living under the kingship of God. You know, make those paper crowns. Talk about uh, how I treat my body. I want Jesus to be wearing the crown rather than me. Mm. Talk about the fact that he made my body uh, as an act of love and he gave it to me as a gift And he wants me to look after it because he loves me so very much. And he thinks your body is good. Yeah. He designed it especially for you. Helen, can you help us? Is it true to say that some of these self-harming ideas are more common in girls than boys? Is Is it true to say that boys normally direct that harm to others? Is that is that a valid stereotype? I think there are um, gender-specific trends, uh, and that probably is a noticeable trend. But the trouble with trends is there are always so many exceptions to the trends that you... There are, of course, lots of boys who self-harm, and there are, of course, lots of girls that lash out. Uh, and so whilst, yes, by all means, let's look at trends, that would be true. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm always a big fan of looking at individuals. Yeah. Just like you don't treat self-harm or you don't treat anxiety or you don't treat a boy or a girl, you treat the precious little image bearer in front of you and they are unique in so many ways. Yeah. And Helen, is it then true to say that whether we see self-harm or harm towards others lashing out, the approach you're asking us to do of just asking why and asking good questions and seeking to understand what's at the heart of the issue, would that be valid for both? Yeah, absolutely. As I was saying, behaviour talks, it's a language, learning that language, learning what it means and learning how to help them uh, to find new ways of expressing their pain and processing their pain and turning to the Lord in the middle of that pain. It's got to be the goal for parenting. It's got to be the goal for every relationship, hasn't it? We want to be doing this as adults and husbands and wife and friends as well. When we see each other doing things that are just not good Mm. for us or the Mm. people around us going, let's understand that better and let's turn to the Lord in the middle of it and let's seek something far more beautiful than this. We're going to jump to Simon Poole, who works with Christians in Sport who continues to think about understanding behaviours that are destructive to his body as a sportsman. My story, growing up very involved in sport as a young person, played rugby. I was heavily involved in the world of sport. And actually, towards my later teens, I had quite a bad injury. And that injury led me to start considering other positions playing rugby and other sport. And actually, through my early time at university, my relationship with sport and particularly exercise changed to some degree. I noticed my ability to be super focused in the way that I honed in on my sporting performance and lots of really good things like discipline and and relationship with sport that was a really good thing became such an ultimate thing to me. It, It became a place where I found control in my life. It was a place I found identity. And actually, a really good thing was commented on also by other people. And so people noticed that I was doing something really well. And actually, in the moment where something so good became all-consuming, 
I noticed, well, actually, I didn't really notice at the time, but people started to help me recognize. And in hindsight, I see more that positive relationship with sport and exercise became quite a negative one in that I was no longer making decisions that were good for my body, but sometimes I was making decisions that were bad for my body. And so against the advice of medical professionals, against the advice of parents, friends at times to be careful how much I was doing or to stop or to rest, there was times at which I just didn't want to or I couldn't because it became such a part of my life that was somewhere I found control and space to to, to be effective in an area. And for me, that became really hard because that was something I'd seen as good and something I'd enjoyed, somewhere I'd seen real growth. Um, actually, I quickly became aware after time that it was something that was harmful. At worst, and the danger was that I was finding my identity in what I was able to do with my body and with my sport. And so the good news of Jesus showed me that my identity was never going to be shaped by what I could do, what I could control, what I could change. But the good news of Jesus is that I will always be defined by what Jesus has done for me and not what I do. And that's a really hard thing to accept as someone who is driven and likes to control and likes to be successful. But actually recognizing that I'm not defined by any of those things was and is and continues to be something that is amazing and completely changes my view of therefore what I can do. And it, it took a lot of people in my ear to say that, to encourage me to recognize that I won't be defined by what I do and what I change and what I achieve, but I'll be defined by what Jesus has done for me. Our identity isn't in what we do or how we might think we can change ourselves, but in what Christ has done. We're going to hear now from Helen about how she learned this through her experience of self-harm. Helen, can I ask, as you look back um, on your own experience and your own story, are you able to spot your own experience of self-harm as those categories of cleansing or that you talked about? And, and how did being a Christian speak into that for you? Is there a sort of specific Bible verse or story that was really special to you? Thank you. Yes. And I'm more than happy to, to share some of that. As a, as a child, I had a very loving couple of parents, but it was also a very chaotic childhood in some ways. And there was abuse from outside of the family. And I think that left me feeling deeply, deeply out of control and deeply dirty. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the strange things about childhood abuse. It may be the abuser who is the guilty one and the person who is abused who is innocent, but it's often the one who has been abused that carries that weight of guilt and shame. Uh, we feel like it's our fault. We feel like mm -hmm. we've done something wrong to deserve it. We must be a bad person. And so that sense of everything being out of control and being a generally bad person that deserved bad things was very much what fueled uh, my self-harm. Mm -hmm. 
It took a long time uh, to tease mm. it out. Um, but then I'd had a long run into that before I started mm. teasing it out. Um, mm. I didn't get help early because I, I kept it so very hidden. But I think eventually there are a number of factors that really helped. One was knowing that I was loved, mm. even though I was messy. Mm. And I think I learned that one fairly early on in my Christian life. I, I think I had assumed, and I think some of our children can assume too, that actually to be a Christian is to be sorted and shiny and good. And I know that probably we don't teach that, but sometimes that's the impression. It is what's picked up. Yeah, yeah. We, we turn up at church, we put nice clothes on, we sit well behaved. Yeah. We're together. And I think learning early on that actually... I was still loved by God and his family when I was a mess, uh, enabled me to have an environment where it was safe to talk about how deep that mess went. And, and I think that's really important because sometimes we can ask people to talk about stuff when it doesn't feel safe to talk about it. What we, they need to know is that there's not going to be a punishment or an argument for being honest mm. uh, and for actually sharing how scared we are. We're not going to get told off for struggling. And so having experienced that safety, I was able then to express and explore what was driving my self-harming behaviours. I think two things that really helped me was understanding the completeness of, of Jesus's work on the cross. Very early on, I understood that what I had done had been washed away. Mm -hmm. But it took me years mm -hmm. to understand that Jesus's work on the cross also impacted what had been done to me. I thought that, mm. you know, I was free from my guilt, but I was still tainted because I'd been bullied, because I'd been abused, because I didn't get stuff right. And seeing that those robes of righteousness that Jesus gives us when we turn to him cover not just our guilt, but our shame as well. It gives us a whole new start, everything in our past washed away, a whole new start in every aspect of our life. Then that was really helpful in knowing that I wasn't a, you know, a, a complete waste of space. I mean, I, I remain a sinner. Uh, I remain someone in need of Jesus's grace day by day. That's never going to change. Mm. But but loved and forgiven, a, a forgiven sinner, not not a not a mired in mud sinner. I'm loved and forgiven is one of the titles of one of our lessons in our identity series, Helen. <laughs> it's just well, well done. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Perfect timing. <laughs> I think that the second thing that really helped me was understanding the lordship of Christ and just knowing that he is king of all things uh, and just teasing that out. What does it mean for him to be king of how I relate to people around me? What does it mean for him to be king of how I treat myself? What does it mean to be him to be king of how I think? Now, of course, there are dangers with that. And I think I fell into that trap once or twice of feeling a bit like a puppet on the string and I had to comply with God. And of course, that's, that's not what we're going for here. He is a loving king who invites us to freedom, but freedom in Christ is acknowledging that he is Lord. And actually, those concepts are quite hard as a child and you have to kind of grow through them bit by bit. But actually seeing that he is calling me to something more beautiful in the way I use my mind, more beautiful in the way I treat myself, mm. more beautiful in the way I treat other people. Mm. And just wanting not to comply, not just to do what I'm told, but to be the beautiful person that he wants me to grow into because he is that kind of good and loving and forgiving God. Then that was a really helpful step as well. So I think I know, I, I feel a bit better 
that all of us, I think, can agree that we want to teach our children and young people about the love and forgiveness available in Jesus and the Lordship of Christ. Like if we had to write, what do we need to teach them? We, we, we know those answers. So we actually know the good news that they need to hear. I think probably what we panic about is what practical steps should I take if we discover self-harm? So in my youth group or in my, in my Sunday school class or at home, what should I do? Well, of course, there is the, the safeguarding uh, things to be done. You know, look at your church's safeguarding policy, follow whatever it says there. That, that is something that needs to be done. There's also the practical thinking about how you're going to be relating to the parents if the parents aren't in that youth group or that children's group. And again, you know, be deferring to to your church policies and procedures on that. I I can't possibly hope to know what every church uh, would do in that particular situation. <laughs> and of course, be talking to other leaders, uh, people that you're allowed to share those conf- that confidential information with. There should be come some kind of communal confidentiality within the church. Again be guided by what's happening in your church. And so, first of all, go through those things. Encourage the parents to take that child to the GP. Mm-hmm. Encourage them to engage with child and adolescent mental health services or other kinds of biblical counselling, if that's what they prefer, to get the help that they need. But when it comes to us, I think you're right in saying that we all understand Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and that brings forgiveness. We've kind of got the cross. We, we've got at least 17 talks up our sleeves yeah. of how yeah. we can explain the cross. But I think often in churches where we struggle a bit more is joining the dots between our doctrine, our theology, what the Bible says, and real life. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about you. This isn't just a child or, or a parent thing. This is a human thing. I can go to church. I can listen to an amazing sermon on the sovereignty of God. I can sing a wonderful song about the sovereignty of God. I can even lead the prayers thanking God for his sovereignty. And yet when I come home, I can do a headless chicken routine because everything is completely out of control. <laughs> and it's what in biblical counselling circles we talk about as the gospel gap Mm -hmm. there is a difference between our taught theology which we can articulate with ease and our functional theology which is how we live our lives and our job as parents as children's workers as friends is to to bring those things together and it's not just god has forgiven you but actually what does it mean Mm -hmm. now to know that God has forgiven you? How is God's forgiveness going to change the way we're thinking? How is God's forgiveness going to change the way we're talking? How is God's forgiveness going to change the way we're acting right in this very moment? Mm-hmm. Now, often we keep things on, on a big picture. You know, God's forgiveness means that we are forgiven. God's sovereignty means we can trust. And what we want to be doing is bring it down to almost the nano level is when we're feeling sad at school, When we're feeling sad at school because someone has been mean to us, what does it mean to trust God right there in the classroom in that moment? And just be talking that through in detail. Oh, Helen, come work for Faith in Kids. That's all what we're about. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm, I'm sure you guys have done more thinking about this than I have in many ways. So, you know, go for it. Um, what would you do as faith in kids, as parents in those situations? Helen, it's tempting now to make it complicated, but you have just made it wonderfully simple, which is, what is the presenting difficulty in your child's life? Ask great questions so you understand it. Mm. Help them to understand what they're feeling, why they're feeling it, Mm -hmm. what they've understood. 
And Helen, it's great just to talk about that gospel gap because you could call it the parenting gospel gap. We know really well what makes our children cry. We know really well what makes them slam a door, shout, scream, punch things. The question is, can we understand the causes and can we understand what it is about Christ that they've heard taught that speaks into that moment? Which I've just made that sound incredibly easy. But it's great that you've you've been talking about that with, with peas, honey. I'm not sure you mentioned honey and everyday situations. Helen, are there some obvious steps that can be in every home that might help with these issues? Yes. And I think every home will do this very differently. We don't want to give the impression there's a one size fits all. And I certainly don't want to give the impression that if you do X, Y and Z, you can mm. prevent self-harm and struggles with body image, because sadly, life is not that simple or predictable. But I think if we have a home where our children know it's safe to be messy, safe to struggle, safe to be broken and to express that brokenness, that is a a great uh, first step. I think if we can have homes where children can see in us, whether that's as parents or grandparents or friends, how to handle the messiness of life, not by pretending it's not there, not by running to all kinds of unhelpful coping mechanisms, but by turning to the Lord, then that's going to be healthy. And by that, I don't mean we always need to. Occasionally, we're going to turn to the ginger nuts. Let's just be realistic. That's that's happening. But actually having a, a culture of trying to, to be good role models in actually going, yes, I am messy. Yes, I am sad. I'm, I'm going to, this is how I'm praying to Jesus in the middle of my sadness. This is the difference that in the Bible story that I was reading this morning is making to my sadness. I think if we can have families where we lament together as well as praise together and actually come together and tell God what's making us sad and asking for his help, we can use the Psalms to help us do that. And if we can have families where we thank God for our bodies, uh, and that can just be really simple with the little ones. You know, thank you, Lord, for my nose. Thank you that today I was able to smell a flower mm. and, well, probably lots of unmentionable other things if uh, <laughs> the children are normal children as well. <laughs> Through to, uh, you know, slightly older children, you know, thanking God for our bodies just as a, a normal part of life, not every day, but just kind of as part of the, the general routine. Mm. And mm. just having families where we know that Jesus loves us and forgives us and we can turn to him safely every day together, knowing that he has something relevant to say to every situation. Those kinds of families, they're not families where we'll be protected from everything, but they will be families that are equipped to to deal with some of the tough stuff that comes. Thank you, Helen. Amy, I wonder if to finish, can you tell us some insight? You you have had these issues in your home. Can you tell us something of steps you've taken and things you've learned? So Helen just said beautiful and wonderful things there that make it sound, you know, they're, they're great. That's what we should be doing. And we can find that a little bit overwhelming because we can't imagine what would that actually look like in that moment. Um, so I suppose I'm going to demystify it for you. So with with a little girl who is worried, it's clear to me that the root issue is worry. 
So I get my Bible app open and I search worry and it gives me a lot of Bible verses and things that God says to worry. And I think, hmm, what's going to help me here? And I think, you know what? We're going to read a couple of Bible verses at bedtime. And I've told you to, how to do the app thing so that you know that it's not like uh, all these years of theological study that have led me to this wonderful verse. It was panic and search. And we've read the couple of Bible verses about you being worth more than many sparrows. And that just having that that conversation about don't be worried, don't be afraid because you are precious to God and reading that verse to her and her saying, God really loves me. And because he really loves me, that should change what I worry about. And we drew a picture of a sparrow and we've coloured it in and we've stuck it on her bedroom wall and we've talked about how precious she is to God and that if something is precious, we look after it. So if I were to pull out her eyelashes or to pull out her hair, I would be being very mean to her. And I wouldn't want to do that because she's so precious to me. And if she understood how precious she was to me and to God, that she would treat herself a little better and that there are other ways. There's a God who loves her, who wants to hear her worries. So we've coloured in the sparrow. It's on her bedroom wall. We talk about how the sparrow needs to fly around her bedroom at night and we need to trust that God loves us. And this beautiful coloured sparrow helps us do that. It's as, it's as simple and as complicated and as uh, deep and as easy as that. Amy, thank you. Thank you for being willing to share a bit of your own family. And thank you, Helen, for being willing to share a bit of your own life with us. We appreciate that. Strangers will have benefited, Helen. Helen, do you think you could pray for us, for the families who are listening to this as we finish? Of course. Let's pray. Thanks, Helen. Oh, Father God, you are such a good and a kind God. You are wise and loving. You are sustaining and providing. You are so gracious and kind. And Father, uh, we know that you love us. We know that you love our children. And so we ask that you will continue leading us and our children through this complicated and sometimes painful thing called life. Father, please, when it is hard, help us all to turn to you. When it is uh, scary, help us to listen to you. When we are confused, help us to follow your leadership. Father, help us to be communities in the church where we can nurture each other through uh, the good days and the bad. And we pray, Lord, that you will equip all of us uh, to be faithful to you uh, and to deal with the pressures of life in ways that honour you. And Father, for those of us that are really struggling right now, we pray that you will pour your comfort into our lives and that you will just lead us the next baby step forward. Not feeling that we need to put everything into practice that we've talked about in this podcast, but just do one thing. Try one thing. Father, please enable us all to be the people that you are calling us to be. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Helen. Thank you very much, Amy. This is part of the Who Am I series of podcasts where we're looking at our identity and how it can be shaped by Christ instead of our culture. If you want to talk to us, email us, tell us what to do instead, tell us what to do next, you can reach us at podcast at faithinkids.org. Go to our website and find the latest resource we've got there, Who Am I? And we'd really love to hear how that goes down in your churches. We haven't had anywhere near enough disgruntled emails lately, Ed. If you're feeling disgruntled, I want to know. I'd love to know. 
We do say that if people truly loved us, they'd tell us what we're doing badly. It does count, although not all at once. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you very much, Helen. Goodbye. Bye.